Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed. You're with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. And before we introduce our guest today, it is worth uh, pondering about what we are seeing all around us in the news. We have a cycle lane here, some sort of smart sensors going on elsewhere, cameras for our safety being put elsewhere, planter boxes, rainbow stripes, the list goes on and on. We have a very benevolent government and allied authorities who are trying to make cities sustainable, streets for children, and all of those inclusive Equitable, have I missed any of the buzzwords yet, Don? Sustainable, the works. The but works. Yeah, the works. That will probably have to do for it. And we've often had people, you know, come to us and ask us, what's going on with the smart cities? Why is this being changed? And the speed at which the changes are coming. When we know that going by the forecast by the different global agencies, be it the IMF or the World Bank, we are pretty much teetering towards the bottom of the pile in terms of projected GDP growth. Yet, New Zealand, a small country of 5 million, seems to have endless billions to spend on all of this rejigging. So, I am very excited today to have someone from the US, who Don and I have been trying to get on for a while, to come and talk to us on Greenwashed. And I thought it's only fair that since we've, you know, recently, our ex-Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has gone to Harvard for yet another fellowship, it's in a US academic to talk to New Zealand about what's going on. So a very warm welcome to Julianne Romanello, a wife. Uh, your doctorate, I believe, Julianne, is in political uh, philosophy, really ancient political philosophy. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you find yourself going around and talking about what you've you've seen happening in the US. And as you and I have corresponded over the last few weeks, it's eerie how identical everything seems to be. Yes, it is. And, you know, it shouldn't take a PhD or any university degree to, to be able to perceive that there's something very wrong mm. with as you mentioned, the, the cameras that are going up, the emphasis on sustainability and, uh, you know, just wild spending by our governments. So that should be, I, I would think, common sense. Something else that I think that, that should be pretty evident to, you know, just the person on the street, even children, is the repetition of these buzzwords, just like you mentioned. So... You know, never in my life would I have imagined that I would be, you know, taking trips to little towns in Oklahoma, um, the state where I live, and and talking about the New World Order. If you had told me that five years ago, I would have looked at you and said, you must be crazy. This is not a thing. Surely no one would do that. Um, but you know, I had a sort of concrete experience at a university that was restructured, and that started the questioning process. And And it was a particularly uh, brutal event, so I wanted to understand it. And one of the things that stuck out to me 
was the repetition of these phrases like sustainability, resilience. I have a list of, oh, several hundred of them. So now, yeah, that's what I do. I have sort of left the books behind, although they were very helpful to me. And I think understanding the use of symbolism, um, the way that narrative is important to this, and maybe we'll talk about narrative and especially how it's used in New Zealand. Um, But here I am, you know, once you see it and the evidence is very clear, you don't, I don't use the dark web. I look at corporate white papers and, and documents uh, from corporations and think tanks and the plans, they, they are written in such a way that, you know, if you're not a careful reader, then you might be fooled. But after you've read enough of them, you should notice that there is repetition, there's the use of a template, and it's going on everywhere. So that in and of itself, I think, should cause people to question. And maybe that was, you know, some of my, you know, academic uh, influences that that really made me look in that way. But I try to to encourage others to do the same thing. And if your listeners look at those uh, repetitions, they, I think, will just be floored at um, how clear the agenda is. Julianne, you referred to this uh, especially brutal transition when you were uh, teaching at Tulsa University. And from somebody who was studying or teaching ancient Greek political thought to this today, could you could you give us a bit of a sense about what happened in your university that got you out here? Yeah, so it's the University of Tulsa, which is a small private liberal arts university with professional schools, so law, uh, engineering. Uh, and it, it was probably the best university in my state. And mm-hmm. I, you know, they had a wonderful honors program and you know, the students were excellent. They wanted to be there. There were the kinds of of eager young minds who also did the work and they they actually wanted to learn. So they enjoyed doing it. They weren't chasing a grade. It was just a beautiful program. We did Western Civ. And all of a sudden, I mean, there was a sort of tension on the campus anyway, but, you know, we've been living in strange times since you know, for a couple of decades, right? So that was unremarkable in and of itself. But the faculty, so about 500 faculty members were summoned to an auditorium at a performing arts hall. I mean, I couldn't make this up. (laughs) (laughs) And they were told by the board, uh, the chairman of the board of the university, that the university would need to pivot it would need to reimagine itself uh, to meet the needs of first-generation college students and prepare them for the workforce. So I'm sure that you're hearing the same thing in your educational systems. And so the 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 individual who came out and presented this to the faculty, who were all in shock. I mean, imagine a room of 500 faculty members just watching this a person on stage who used the phrase we are, he's referring to the board, rowing in unison. And we must all be rowing in unison. It's another phrase that they use over and over again. But as 
you know, I hadn't been paying attention to this corporate garbage because I'd been reading old books, right? <laughs> you oh. know? Uh, so it just, I thought, this looks like, and I hope, you know, they're, they, you'll just take this um, analogy at face value. I thought this seems like, like a Nazi rally, you know, um, you're, you're summoned, you're told what the agenda is. It was going to slash the liberal arts. It was going to transform the way that degrees were earned. And, you know, it had been a secretive process in which this new plan was developed. And it was using all of this Orwellian doublespeak. Like the, the program itself was called true commitment. So, I couldn't believe that other faculty members didn't stand up and boo, you know, if any time were a time for booing, but they sat there amazed. And, you know, I, uh, my dissertation, my, my primary area of research is the work of Eric Vogelin, who was a 20th century political philosopher and brilliant. And he had, I had actually just written an essay on his essay entitled On Classical Studies. And he talks about the, uh, the, the deculturation of the West and how we have lost our ability to understand the very concept of reason itself. You know, you'll, people will think about it in terms of just cause and effect or rationality or in a mechanistic way. Um, and Vogelin looks at the dangers of that. And in this essay, he mentions, you know, he has a line. I wish I could remember it exactly. But he says, you know, the danger of losing reason to this degree and butchering our language is that you can end up with the grotesqueness of the situation at like at Auschwitz. So that's one reason why, you know, when I saw this event unfolding and I'd been writing this essay and and Vogelin had fled Germany, he was not Jewish, but he uh, opposed Hitler and, and any kind of racial ideology. Um, I, I just was I could not believe that the faculty took it. And I was sort of visiting. I was a visiting faculty member and I didn't want my dean to, you know, to suffer any consequences for my unruly behavior. So I told everyone around me, are you listening to this? This is just like what Vogelin writes about. This is like what every person who has commented on World War II and all of these other, you know, terrible, dark moments in human history have been talking about, and we're living through it. And all of these academics are clueless. Sorry, that so, was probably more than what you wanted to hear, well, but... No, that's fine. I mean, that's it's a great start. And I mean, I'm uh, I'm very much a layperson. I had no reading of history and no reading of philosophy, uh, but clearly the world has been full of influences uh, over its time, and the influences that have come to the fore um, have clearly managed to uh, have their their art crafted in such a way it's now being presented. Now, the one that just got me, the line that gets me, is the long march through the institutions. Now, I would have thought everyone in a university would have understood what Marx and, and Gramsci and co. were on about. Uh, clearly, clearly, they are sort of oblivious to it, or is that what you're trying to wake them up to? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, well, what I tried to wake faculty members up to, at first I just was the plan for our university. And it didn't take me long to figure out, okay, this university is being basically taken over, a corporate takeover by big philanthropists, a, a billionaire in town and our chamber of commerce, and they're going to use it to create a workforce. So instead of giving the the you know, young people and, and older people, I mean, you know, you can have all ages, uh, the conversations that could help them to determine what's real, what's not real, what they want to do with their lives, to understand the sciences. Um, you know, the, instead, the university was going to be creating assembly line parts for a workforce that had already been predetermined. And and that is a Marxist model, you know? Um, so I tried to show concretely, here's how TU, that what we call the university, you know, here's how TU will be affected. And you're probably gonna lose your job because they're looking to replace all professors with robots or programs, you know? Um, and so, oh, your digital credential, uh, you know, requirements for now, now I can't remember the name of the system, but, you know, you would have to upload your CV and, and enter in all of these credentials. And, and it's the, the software is mining that for the most effective syllabi so that the syllabi can just be delivered without any human interaction Interface. whatsoever, except through a screen. So I tried to appeal to their self-interest and their institutional interest, let, let, you know, never mind the larger philosophical questions of should a university be doing what we're doing? And then, oh, here is the larger, much larger program uh, about really, you know, harvesting human data and, you know, learning how to control behavioral psychology in order to make a profit off of social engineering, you know? We didn't even get there because they said, oh, Julianne, you, you know, they would never do that. I said, look at all of these white papers. Look at these agreements with our city council. It's all here. Oh, Julianne, you're a right wing nut job. You know, I was like, huh. I'm not. <laughs> I'm an academic. I thought, oh, yeah. It was just so, you know, and then when you see people who resort to that kind of ad hominem, criticism, you know, you know that you're dealing with someone who doesn't really want to understand. They've got some kind of a defense. Yeah. Now, Julian, your website, or it is it is your website, as well as a similarly named YouTube channel, Hearts Over Hexagons. Mm -hmm. And I've been seeing your videos as you've done a bit of traveling in the US in these last few months. And that's why you've been hard to pin down, because Don and I have been <laughs> wanting to speak with you for a while. So give us a sense of what you've been talking about and what sort of uh, developments are people facing out there in the U.S.? And after that, we can move on to New Zealand and see how we compare. Yeah. So, you know, because I started looking at what was happening it, to a university in our city, it led me to the the billionaire. And I usually pick on one, but there's several. There's a whole cartel of them who are local I mean, they live here, they have their names all over the building. So this is not someone that lives in Davos and is, you know, just mm -hmm. 
investing in us. Like this is a resident who is a scene out in public. Um, because I came up into this new work doing that, you know, people here in Tulsa, where I am, and in the whole state, because our, our billionaire, George Kaiser is his name, he has a huge influence in the state. They were, they wanted to know what he was doing and how it would affect them. You know, so it, so people started asking me to come talk to their groups really because they knew, they knew that something was going on that was, it was awry and they wanted to understand it. This is like just in many different areas in our, in our social civic life. You know, you would see public private partnerships that couldn't, you never knew who was in charge because there were layers and layers of public private partnerships. I often say, I think it's for money laundering. Uh, yeah. But, you know, so people wanted to understand, well, how George Kaiser is funding all of this. He's funding all of that. Oh, well, we're getting these partnerships. So uh, so I had answers about George Kaiser, and I wasn't afraid to, you know, say the truth about him, which everyone else seems to be still. Uh, and what I was able to figure out about impact investing, uh, I found a, a really great source on that uh, who helped me understand it. Um, Allison McDowell is her name, so I just want to give her credit for that. You know, I was able to explain this new economy and the social transformation that was going on with the billionaire. And of course, that led to people wanting to know about smart cities and, and you know, the surveillance, the, uh, the infrastructure for tracking impact for these new financial mechanisms. And, you know, once people started hearing how awful it is and the depth of, of influence that's here, you know, then everybody wanted a piece of it. And, you know, yeah. and I, I'm always a curious person. So, you know, I'll go look into things like, oh, you know, here's how they're tracking beef. Um, you know, so we have lots of farmers and ranchers here who've been very concerned about beef databases coming through the USDA. So I'd go look at that and I can always relate it back to this new economic model that's based on surveillance. So now I, I probably turned down, I would say, 80 percent of the invitations that I get to speak just because I, I've got four kids and I can't I just can't manage it. But everywhere in every little tiny town in every rural area in the united states the freest country in the world we're setting up uh you know traffic access points smart buildings road resurfacing water management uh systems we're tracking and tracing everything we have more cameras per capita than china so wow. you know so people hear it I think they haven't they have a sense that something's wrong and that it's going in this direction, but they are really shocked and sometimes paralyzed once they hear the full scope. So what is the full scope? What is that? What is the big threat? I mean, see, that's I, I've got an issue with uh, in, in our local city where spending was supposed to be eight hundred thousand on CCTV for criminal behavior, bad behavior downtown, but it's now up to two point four million. Um, that's just how councils work, it seems. Uh, but 
you know, that it seems if, to me that if you had the right uh, right ways of living in your own society, you wouldn't need a camera at all. You wouldn't need any if you if you educated people about property rights and the understanding that um, what you own is yours and you should never never desecrate the property of others. You shouldn't have this criminal behaviour downtown and you shouldn't have to do surveillance. So, what is the surveillance all about, really? What is it going to be about? I mean, really, it's about making money off of tracking ESG outcomes. You know, so environmental, social governance outcomes. So that is basically the sustainable development uh, global goals in corporate terms, right? So these metrics, which are developed by Davos and, uh, you know, all of the think tanks, academics and the world bankers who, who contribute to those, they have picked these different metrics that are going to indicate how healthy of a society we are, right? And they these because we have the technology to track continuous improvement, you can speculate on the financial markets about the the projected outcomes. outcomes. So yes, so you know, as I was listening to, you know, I made it through a, a couple of the. Uh, the videos on the digital from the digital twin playlist that you sent me, um, Jasper, and you know the the woman who is selling this digital twinning uh, program. She says, "Oh, this it, it." She makes it sound so great. It's all about outcomes. It's all about outcomes. We just want people to be happy and resilient and prosperous, and you know, same buzzwords. <laughs> Well, those outcomes will be, uh, you know, the the securities for financial speculators. So they're going to come up with different investments that are supposed to create an impact. So progress toward those goals. Uh, and all of the, the surveillance helps to track the concrete progress um, that people are making or not. And it, you know, we should note, you know, I like to use the analogy, you know, the 2008 uh, economic crisis. So here mm -hmm. in the U.S. with our mortgage-backed securities, you know, you had Wall Street bankers betting against the American people's ability to pay their mortgages and and they were making bets against the uh you know financial outlooks of large institutional investors right so they could make money what if you know as long as they were able to project the right direction of the change you know if you're mm -hmm. tanking or if you are actually you know moving towards solvency and and a sound financial system so Think of the global goals as, you know, the ability to pay back mortgages and the stability of a financial system. And then think of impact investors as a, a group of people who are speculating on whether or not we're going to make those targets. And because it has to do with human behavior, you have to have a, instead of numbers and just money flowing here and there that could be quantified easily, you have to have all of the surveillance. You have to have a digital ID so that every person 
every object, every service can be tracked, traced, and somehow linked to these goals. And it really is a program to measure, manage, and monetize all aspects of life. It's quite an excess, isn't it? The United Nations SDGs, the World Economic Forum. Then it comes down to our local governments, our own governments who we thought were yeah. going to be working for the benefit of their country. Then we have these stakeholders and corporates and it's it's quite a few tentacles. And I, I don't blame the ordinary person for just about giving up. In fact, you know, giving up a wish, losing the will to live because it is so dark, so deep and all pervasive, absolutely all pervasive, regardless of whether you're in the US or where we are in New Zealand. Uh, listeners, we are speaking to Julianne Romanello this morning on Greenwashed. And if you want to text us a question or a comment, please do so on 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Before we go more into it, I'd like to read out a couple of uh, snippets that have come across me over this last weekend. The first was that the Auckland Transport is installing pedestrian crossings every few hundred meters on North Road. So what 80 Auckland Transport has done is over, I think, about 900 meters. They've installed three pedestrian crossings, which I would say is an overkill by any stretch of imagination. Likewise, this is a screen grab I'm reading out from a Wellington chat page, which says, let us not get Wellington moving. They've now, I presume this is the council or the government or NZTA, they've now put posts up outside Rangutai College, so there's zero parking to pick up students. Also, a fire truck had lights and sirens on going past in the afternoon, and no one could pull over from the traffic as there was no one to pull over, no place to pull over because of the bike lanes and posts and so on. Who thought this up? Now, I have an answer for this. I know exactly who thought this up. The entire surveillance state that is gunning for all of this, 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 and they have the cheek, Julian, to call this transit-oriented development, whereas we are not transiting anywhere. We seem to be stuck in limbo. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, the ultimate goal is to lock you down, to make it so inconvenient to go anywhere and so expensive to go anywhere mm -hmm. that you'll be you know, resigned to doing all of, to to living 100% of your life in a live, work, play unit. And you've probably seen that phrase, live, work, play. I came across it, I think, in, you know, some of the documents maybe that I sent to you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are these huge uh, stack and pack multi-family uh you know, housing developments that are usually packed into city centers, but they're going in rural areas too. And they are made to be self-sufficient units that you never have to leave. And it's marketed as convenience, right? But it is, there is, it's a dual purpose technology, we might say, to keep you locked up there. So the transit-oriented development is, you know, I came across that phrase in trying to understand my city's smart city plan, which here was, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to find a comprehensive plan that says smart city plan on it. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, you know, a lot of them say comprehensive plan, vision plan, innovation plan, something like this. But I wanted one that said smart city plan. And it just so happened that this was a, a transportation plan that was filed with the U.S. Department of Transportation. So I started looking at this and uh, came across the phrase transit oriented development, which you can put into Google and it's going to mm. tell you this is the way to set up a 15 minute city that you never have to leave. And, you know, we have to understand that our resetters, as I like to call them, they don't stop at a 15 minute city, you know, um, they're going to keep inching those boundaries in until to, until you're in that live, work, play compound and it's too expensive for you to leave, you know, it's unsafe, um, you know, you don't have enough social credit points, so you're just going to stay in this large, high-density urban development and put on your VR goggles when you're miserable in your, you know, 800-square-foot <laughs> coop, right? That's the goal. And they do do it through transportation by making it difficult for people to travel and creating problems like congestion that then they have to fix and waste your money doing it. Yeah. And so if you were just playing a devil's advocate for a moment, if you were to redesign a city from ground zero right now, I know there's one uh, happening apparently in uh, Saudi Arabia, but if you were doing it from ground zero today, uh, wouldn't you want to be uh, condensing people into an area uh, like a ghetto um, and um, ghettoizing people? If you were, if you were the power brokers of the world, wouldn't you want to do that? Even if you were starting from the most technologically advanced opportunity and design of in the world, that's what you'd do, surely. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, they don't want us around; they want to control us. And it's easier to do that if we're poor, resourceless, and we never have conversations beyond our own zone, you know. And then there's another aspect to it, which is that the, the you know, the money-making mechanism behind the new international economic order is, you know, this social engineering program. So making money off of behavior change. And... Our resetters love to test different strategies to see how human motivation works, what people can tolerate, when they're going to go berserk and become so unstable that they might, you know, be a useful tool in the next, uh, you know, major false flag event that we have, right? So you can get that that sophisticated and precise behavioral data when you have people controlled into in small environments with you know a, just the right mix of different demographic information different economic opportunities and you know when they're controlled in every way you can glean that data and learn how they're going to respond to different events we, I just had, uh, you know, read out the screen grab uh, from Wellington, so one of its chat pages. Now, Wellington is our capital, Julian, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, the government offices, everything else is there. It's, I call it the bureaucrat city. Auckland is our largest city, 1.7 million. So a third of New Zealand lives there. Wellington is currently 
spearheading a $7.5 billion program that they call Let's Get Wellington Moving. The mayor has gone to the Bloomberg uh, city center, city center, they call it Bloomberg Center for Cities. Uh, mm-hmm. Under it runs a Bloomberg lab, city lab in Harvard, followed by the chief of staff, also I think followed by the CEO. But all of this was preceded last year by Wellington win- winning a global prize for innovation and $1 million US in prize money uh, by winning the Bloomberg Mural Challenge. And it it did that. It's award-winning project for which Wellington actually got one million American dollars for us. That would transfer to about 1.5, I would say, about Don million New Zealand. The project was the Wellington Digital Twin City, a virtual representation of the systems and things that make up the city, a 3D model, it says, brought to life through real-time data from sensors and processors to help understand and make better decision about how Wellington grows. And then the then Mayor Andy Foster was delighted that we were one of the first 15 cities to win this award. Now, sounds pretty good. That's a global philanthropy head, uh, Michael Bloomberg, giving us $1.5 million to the Wellington Council and now very conveniently footing the bill for people in Wellington local government to go to his center for cities. But what is, if you would like to elaborate, what is a digital twin city? We seem to hear it so often. And the best I, you know, knew of twin cities, we used to have sister city programs in New Zealand. So you might have a mayor from one city, say, going to Japan or China. That was real time. What is this digital twin business? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just fuming because Michael Bloomberg, I would say he is my nemesis. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know the billionaire that I mentioned that's here in Tulsa? Well, he and Michael Bloomberg are investment partners, right? And our mayor schmoozes with Michael Bloomberg all the time. And Michael Bloomberg is, in my humble opinion, m- much more dangerous than Bill Gates because he goes under the radar. Let me so let me see if I can link these two things very easily and you can tell I'm getting fired up about it because you know Bloomberg is I think the seventh richest man on the Forbes international list of mm-hmm. wealthy people. He made his money in media uh, and uh, data analytics and market insights. So this is a guy who made billions, and I'm not even going to speculate if that is where his money actually came from or not, but on tracking and tracing behavior and predicting outcomes so that he could do what, you know, get an edge in the financial markets. So this is exactly what, what the new economy is about. Bloomberg made his fortune in it, and it runs off of the surveillance. So the digital twin uh, is an online or, you know, it's a web-based copy of your life, of any object's life. Uh, It could be a city's life where everything is replicated in the cloud, not even on a server someplace, but in this nebulous world. And... You know, I have a friend 
in Australia, Cindy Niles. If you don't, if you're not from, I'm sure you two are friends. She, I just recommend everything that she writes. You know, she came up with this very important distinction about the, the difference between web three and, you know, our current internet. And, and she said, you know, web three will not be optional. You're So, so where the digital twin exists and how it operates is going to be forced upon us. So you will have to enter into this digital world, so to speak. Uh, You know, you're going to have to use technology. You're going to have to grant your biometric data to prove who you are so that you can access the software, the app that lets you in the door um, to some place. All of this is going to be conducted in the cyber physical world and and human beings are really going to have no choice but to engage it whereas now we can turn off a computer you can pay bills with a check in them through the mail you know for the most part people can still do this uh, but once the the digital twin is fully set up you will have no choice about having to interact with it like it's a real person. And all of those interactions are going to be generating more behavioral analytics data for, you know, for really evil people like Michael Bloomberg. And I, and I use that word deliberately because he, I think he is sneaky. He is, uh, you know, one of the founder, he's the founder of C40 Cities, which is a huge smart cities yeah. initiative. And this guy has his tentacles in New Zealand, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in every little city. And he does the same thing. You flatter the local counselors with grants and with, you know, uh, participation in conferences that's going to look like, uh, you know, something on their CV, their resume, you know, that that sets them above everybody else. Oh, I got to go to a Bloomberg uh, conference in the States, maybe at Harvard. Well, let me tell you, I mean, Harvard is a cesspool. It's totally owned by these think tanks. That's great. Then then, uh, so it's it's really good. You called it a cesspool because that's where our ex prime minister, Jacinda Ardern is. And, you know, people do get flattered. I, Dawn and I had listened to uh, this recording from another bigger city of ours, Christchurch and their mayor going on about one afternoon session telling everyone there's going to be tea break soon. But before that, she's speaking to the rest, everyone else in the room, the council, saying that I have got an amazing news. I've got an invite from to a very select club. I got called by Michael Bloomberg. So, you know, this is this is not new. And that it is amazing. Uh, I wouldn't have thought we would have something in common with Tulsa, but there you are, the same Michael Bloomberg, the, the same, same faces. So you can tell your, you know, your, your um, excited, you know, <laughs> counselor there. No, it you're is just the same as every local counselor in Podunkville, Backwoods, Oklahoma, USA. You know, Hmm. no one knows who we are. They're getting the same invites that you are. It is not a big deal. It's a dime a dozen. This guy is, you know, worth something like, Hmm. I don't know, almost it's, he's, it's close to a trillion dollars. I think it's his 
Gosh. Well, and he's using councillors as uh, councils as drones uh, to be cloned. Um, it just doesn't seem right, does it? Where's the individuality? I mean, I want my city and my surroundings to be sort of have an individual side to them. You know, something that's unique for for the area and the country. Why would we want to all be managed and mind managed by by others? I don't get it. Nobody wants this, but the thing is, people are, I mean, to be, you know, to give human beings the benefit of the doubt, I think people are busy, you know, we're stressed out because we live an, in an upside down fake world, you know, where yeah. we, you know, I didn't know how to farm. I've tried to grow some pumpkins. They were beautiful. And then the bugs came, you know, so I, I actually grew two really beautiful gray blue pumpkins and then the bugs just ate everything so when you mentioned that in new zealand uh you know your farmers don't have subsidies i think you know farming is so difficult i i can't keep the bugs off of my pumpkins you know but at 42 years old i am just you know for about four years i'm just getting in touch with dirt and seeds and produce from my own backyard so yeah. we so so i think people are so upside down and sh and stressed out and we live and, yeah, disengaged and from reality this totally disengaged from reality this changes of the seasons and i'm not being you know an earth worshiper here but just doing regular things that people have always done that keep us grounded with each other, with the world that we live in, with God, um, we're not there. So no one knows what these new initiatives mean. They just know that they're that they have this angst and they want something that's going to alleviate that angst. And they think that a better city plan with a revitalized downtown, with more arts opportunities, with active transportation and livable, walkable. Oh, God, there's the buzzwords. Yep. Yeah, revitalize all of these words. How, how many times have we heard them everywhere? But I, I often think, Julianne, for a country of 5 million, you know, the U.S. is big. I are you about 350 million? I'd say give or take something. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I thought it was closer to 33, but. Okay. Now you'd be more precise. I just well, rounded it off in my head. Well, it's, it's grown a lot in the last 12 months, hasn't it? Oh, like <laughs> you know, but we are wide open. Yeah. But we, for a country of 5 million, we have a lot of world first, a lot of feathers to our cap. We are the first country in the world to have all 78 councils and unitary bodies sign up to the smart cities uh, plan. Again, most people have no idea. A NGO or, you know, a subsidiary organization working signed us up to it. We are the first country in the world that has decided it is going to have real-time emissions data of every city and town worth its salt. Every Everything that's on the map, we are going to have it. We are also... I mean, you and I, we were watching those uh, lectures, uh, the presentations on Smart Cities Australia and New Zealand, talking about digital twins and talking about smart benches and the real-time data tracking. The surveillance state here is absolutely, absolutely out of control. And 
one would think there's no better petri dish for all of these uh, globalist agendas than New Zealand. Right, because you know, just like we were talking about the 15-minute cities and wanting to close the walls in and to establish control populations so that you can test different interventions of, mm. you know, behavioral interventions. I mean, your New Zealand is a ready-made uh, control dish right there. You know, so you, on one hand, you're the petri, you know, you're the petri dish. Um, you're also a, a sort of control dish because there. I would. I. I don't know what your um, migration is. I think I remember reading that that's a goal is to bring more people into the country to fill your workforce needs and and they're also saying oh. we will have climate refugees millions of them this was in a un conference that happened uh, two weeks ago we had an ex-reserve bank governor of new zealand stating this that new zealand needs to be ready he probably meant not just new zealand also australia and you know all of us yeah. out here in the south pacific but he said millions of climate refugees so yeah See, now that makes no sense because how are they going to get to new zealand I mean, yeah. we might sink ourselves, Don. Hey, the sea <laughs> levels are rising. <laughs> I, I think we're in defense, and you know, in corporate strategy, I guess that's one way to defend yourself against a hostile takeover. It's called uh -huh. Pac-Man defense. You know, where you, um, you eat them. No, a poison pill. That's the one I'm thinking of. Where you, uh -huh. mm. but you know, yeah. So there's gonna, I think. I was reading about, this was really shocking, uh, you know, New Zealand, as part of your your global sustainability program, I was really surprised to see how much emphasis there is on the social aspect of it. So, you know, um, it was all about making people feel welcome and wanting, I, I'll, I'll find it for you and send you the link, but it, the way I read it, they want to bring in uh, diverse peoples because it diversity is just good, and New Zealand will be a, a better, better place for it. Place mm. if you bring in a whole bunch of people who have a totally different culture and don't know the area and are going to be dumped, you know, yeah. on this island state, and then. You know, it's going to be better for everyone. We're all going to miraculously be happy. Well, that's not how human beings work, you know? No. I mean, we like to have conversations with people who have different views and experiences with us. But, you know, this sort of forced, forced. integration is, I mean, I think it it's cruel to both populations because, you know, you have a way of life sort of developed. You have infrastructure that can support maybe, you know, uh, the people that you have on uh, in the country right now. You know, these, these targets to bring in people are designed to make your infrastructure look obsolete so that you can build it back better and smarter. Um, you know, and it, it looks to me that really New Zealand is you're at the center of this because you can't leave because this the population is 
small relative to other countries. Although you say five million, I mean that seems pretty large for your air for the the land area. Well, if I can just no, it's it's not that huge relatively. Where we've got one hundred and four thousand square miles as a as a country, and the Netherlands is um, tiny in comparison with us. Um, when you analyze it, the Netherlands has got seventeen million people. But from two thousand and three, here's a statistic. The then Minister for the Environment was, um, I think we had about 4 million people, but she said in her report, uh, we will have 4.4 million by 2021 and 4.6 million by 2050, while we're at 5.1, I dare say, billion, uh, million today. So we're way, way above the uh, expectation of 15, 18 years ago. And it just shows you as a percentage, we have grown massively compared to many other countries in the world relative to where we were. And of course, that has stimulated all manner of uh, investments, especially into housing and spe you know, and speculation. Of course, our infrastructure hasn't been keeping up as well, but the quality of our spend on infrastructure has been pretty, pretty average as well. So, I mean, things change. And so the bit for me in all of this equation, um, Julian, is I'm not against the evolution of ideas and, and the good things that come out of that. The bad stuff drifts away. It's when you get overreached by um, by people that uh, are using and exerting power that is unfettered um, and that the regulatory systems aren't there to control them. And I don't have any feeling we're going to have any governance structures that are going to put the regulatory uh, restrictions on these things that we're, we're talking about today. I mean, I remember as a kid in the 60s looking at the Jetsons and sci-fi stuff, and I'm, I hate sci-fi. I can't stand it. Uh, but but I did have to suffer that as a kid watching early television. Um, never thought much of it. Uh, but it's there's elements of truth coming out now that these all uh, powerful people want to be more powerful than others and, and the middle class is under massive threat that's what i think yeah yeah they want to decimate the middle classes i have a mm. screenshot from mm. the book the workplace of the future and it talks about the fourth industrial revolution is going to decimate the middle classes knowledge workers you know so you know um all of the people who work in the corporations their jobs can be outsourced to uh you know a program uh, that can control things without bias, that can achieve just the right mix of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in every decision. It can optimize efficiency. And so what are you going to do with all of these, you know, uh, jobless, middle-class um, people? You're going to reskill them. And you're going to make money reskilling them for the new future of work, and that was a big deal in your plan. Uh, your the New Zealand plan was, you know, to prepare people for the future of work. And I think, I mean, that who was decided that future? Who decided that future? Right. We have these massive polytechnics all being amalgamated, absolutely shoddy spending already down in the red in the first year of its, uh, you know, because they took away all the smaller polytechnics and they made one massive bureaucracy. In the first year, it's in the red already. And the apprentices, uh, Don, did you see that uh, comment in the NZ Herald? People are saying, the apprentices are saying the training is absolutely shoddy. But yet that is our future of work. And they they really don't care what's happening. 
No, they don't. Oh, mm-hmm. and, and another thing that may shock you, and it's happened in the last three years, uh, Julian, is we now have a separate Maori uh, health authority. So we have we have um, divided the country in two with a, a, yeah, a separate system for Maori, which makes no sense in a uh, in a um, modern society. I wouldn't have thought, but there you go. But I yeah. I play the devil's advocate here, Julian. What they are saying is they're very openly stating that. New Zealand's demographic is going to change and say in another 15, 10, 15 years, there's going to be more than a doubling of the population that identify as Maori or indigenous or Pacifica, you know, from Pacific Islands. But that is going to happen when you suddenly start saying, because people have mixed heritage. There is no two ways about it. People in New Zealand, unlike in many other places, there has been uh you know, living together for more than a century and a half, nearly two centuries. And there's been interbreeding, intermarriages, living together peacefully. Uh, Mostly, there have been ugly times. But they are now saying universities, suddenly we need a professor for this. Auckland Council is right now recruiting for a climate change advisor in Maori, a Maori climate change advisor. So even if you have a certain amount of ethnicity, if you identify as that and you land that job, well, you will, won't you? There's an incentive there to identify as a certain ethnicity because that takes you places. And all of this is going to see a huge shift. And then suddenly there's going to be, oh, suddenly, because uh, they say the, you know, the European population is poised to decrease. The Maori population is poised to increase. And migrants, brown people, the average middle brown like me are also going to increase. And all I see around me is cultural wars. This is what I saw in India growing up as a small minority religion, the politicians pitting us. And this is what I see here now. And I I would dare say maybe in the US with the unfettered migration you've had, are you seeing similar things? Yeah, I mean, I'm not seeing so much animosity between the new Mm. immigrants uh, and the population here. I mean, people are concerned about it because for the same reasons that that every other country who's experiencing these surges is concerned. How do we deal with an influx of people who have no money? They don't speak the language. You know, they, they're in desperate situation anyway. You know, it's a technical challenge. But but I have not seen so much just um, of the, the cultural war on that front. Where I uh-huh. see it happening is on... Um, on issues of sexuality and oh. critical race theory, race theory, you know, with especially having to deal with um, African Americans, and then they bring in Latinos and and indigenous Hispanics, and, yeah. So the so the immigrants aren't. I mean, it's concerning, and maybe this is just my limited perspective, but but. But what I see happening is a a battle in the schools, especially over, you know, gay rights issues and how we talk about people's, you know, preferences um, for a partner. And then the the topic of of critical race theory and especially on these historic like lines of of historical fission, which to me, I think I have much more in common with a 
you know, a black person of my same age, same socioeconomic class as, you know, I have much more in common with them than someone of, of the ultra elite class in my own race. Right. You know, so yeah. I tend to think that that we need to pay more attention to the economics of this rather than the sort of identity politics. And to me, I think that you have a lot of, you know, conservative, freedom minded people here in the States who are so concerned with protecting kids in schools from the cultural, social indoctrination, that they are absolutely blind to the economic ramifications being leveled out and the surveillance state. So that's a long winded answer to your question. But I think, yeah, yeah it, the immigration is being used as a tool to, you know, force people to to heighten their sense of identity um, and in that way not look at some of these larger programs and and the public's inability to control it even if they did see it, even if they were paying attention. Because it is all outsourced. This is something that I've tried to emphasize if I could just have another minute. You know, when I go give these talks to groups in, in Oklahoma, and I could do it anywhere. I did one in uh, New South, for New South Wales, Australia over Zoom. And and the reason I can do that is because it's the same program same. everywhere. right? Templates. And I tried to explain, look, this is the end of representative government as we know it. This is the end of popular sovereignty of any kind of oversight uh, as to finances, as to policy, law, the judicial system, we are losing all of that. Yeah. And it's going to be transferred to a corporate governance stakeholder model. And then eventually it's going to be delegated to the AI. And if you have ever tried to get through to a corporation to have customer service with anything. I know I just had to get a new phone yesterday and was waiting on the phone, you know, trying to get through. And they say, you're there are five callers ahead of you and you want to throw the phone through something because it's so frustrating. That is what e-governance is going to look like. You know, when we outsource everything, first of all, to private actors and privatized government, but then we digitalize it. And that is, I think, a point of no return. I couldn't and agree so, more to this one, Don. I'm sure you yeah, have thoughts on this. Well, and, and, you know, this has happened. I mean, the evolution of all this or the genesis of all this may have been hundreds of years ago, or at least 100 years ago, but the uh, technology that became available in the last 25 years has just made this gather speed apace. And I mean, I'll never forget the first night I met Jess Breed. She got humiliated by um, a politician who who basically said there's nothing to see in terms of the United Nations uh, and its influence in New Zealand, nothing to see here. Uh, and so we're told in every forum you'll ever go to in New Zealand, you're told that there's nothing binding about the United Nations um, edicts, nothing binding, even though it's through all our uh, local councils. It's often mentioned in boardrooms uh it seems to be everywhere it's just not a it's nothing binding nothing to see here and yet the language that we started this whole interview uh with was around language you go right back to that the language of the un 
the WEF is right in front of us in all of this stuff. And yet we're told locally there's nothing to see nothing here. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Completely it's, it's, lie. It's, it's, they it's they lie. They, I mean, I think that there's some there are some people who are in local governments, regional governments, who really don't know because they've gone to the Bloomberg Institute and they have been probably literally brainwashed yeah. with these terms over and over and over again, the repetition of these terms that and and you know, Don, like you said, with the speed of technological advancement in the past three decades, say, you know, that has allowed us, uh, or I should say, it it has allowed the powers that be that want to control all of us to totally restrict our our horizon of wonder, of understanding, of you know, historical appreciation of anything, you know, because what happens? We, you know, we've put children and, you know, ad and adults willingly choose to sit in front of the TV, to use the phone, to spend most of your day being fed this propaganda that can be transmitted with in real time at warp speed, it can anticipate what you want. That's, you know, the digital twin city is going to be able to recognize where you're going before you actually get there and then feed you the advertisements that will be most lucrative to the, you know, the, yeah. the people who want the profit. They can design that narrative so that people have, they just don't know what's going on. And I hear all the time. So, so I do think that there's some people that are clueless, but then there are those who flat out lie to you. And this happens, I say, it's also part of the template. If you have a public official in any capacity who scoffs at you for suggesting that, you know, the sustainability goals are operative in your area, then that person is probably in on it because it is inhumane and and it violates, I would think, the terms of the office to, you know, just dismiss a concerned citizen's inquiry without, you know, without even looking into it. So when you have scoffers, you know, who who say, oh, that's just nuts. And I've heard that many times. I, I asked about our city plan. I said, you know, to one city councilor, I said, does this plan prioritize active transportation over the, you know, possession of individual uh, vehicles, cars? Yeah. And he said, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and I couldn't believe he just lied. And this was in front of an audience, but you never have the time to retort and, you know, people no. move on. But they lie. And so if they do that, I think, you know, this should be a clue to thoughtful people who have a brain, who haven't, you know, been to all of Bloomberg's councils. If someone is dismissive like that or, you know, calling you a, a conspiracy theorist, then buyer beware. They need to be censored now or else they're going to yeah. be a stakeholder. And it is this 
I think, you know, coming to drawing to a conclusion here, digital government, the what you you had mentioned that, Julian, that that's where it's coming to. And then that that is the end. If I simply just Google digital government New Zealand, it brings me up to a website, digital.govt.nz, which it says, is your guide to the information and tools to support the digital transformation across New Zealand government. It goes on to say, you know, different councils that are going on, but Smart Wellington, local government with NGOs, and we are working towards digitally transforming your world. If you look back further in it, it says that New Zealand, we are the initial uh, members of the DN or digital network countries of the world. And would you believe we were a founding member of that? The original five who set up the DN network were Estonia, South Korea, UK, New Zealand, and you can possibly guess the last, Israel. So these five countries set up the DN network. We were a founding member of it, and nobody talks about it. The same website, if you look at it, talking about Smart Wellington, it says, Digital Government New Zealand has the Smart Wellington program to uh, bring together government NGOs to turn Wellington into a smart city. Now, you can easily find a smart city everywhere. They never tell you where it is. And I think we need to appreciate the fact that we have reached a stage in the world, regardless of whether you're in Oklahoma or we are here or even my parents in India, governments, and this might be too much, you know, but this is what I think. Governments, be it regional, be it central, they are just placeholders. The power is now vested in these non-governmental organizations, busybodies, meddling, tinkering about our lives without any regard for individual wishes. People email me at council, you know, I'm, I'm a sitting councillor right now. Long may it last or not. I don't know. But uh, I have people email me, what do you know about smart cities? And what do you know about this? And what have we signed up to? Uh, I often have responded to a few people. I said, uh, you know, if others tell you they don't know, they are not lying. They're perfectly, most counselors, most people, most staffers have no idea. But go and look at the big consultants. Look at consultants like WSP, Canadian, 60,000 employees across the globe. It's in every council in New Zealand. Look at AECOM, American engineering firm, close to 50,000 employees across the world. Look at Becca, that's a Southeast Asian engineering firm. And Becca was the first one to launch, uh, to speak about the digital twin city in New Zealand in 2018, five years ago. These are all movers and shakers within our government. And regardless of whosoever comes, and that's a cynical way of looking at it. But I've always found central government elections, and one has just happened recently, they're just a change of guard. Nothing truly changes, does it? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're exactly right. Um, it's the same here. It's the same in Europe. It's the same everywhere. If there is a bright spot, I think it would be that that the NGOs, the multinationals still have to have a puppet. I mean, you, you know, when you look at their white papers, they talk about how you have to have, you know, in rolling out ESG, you know, just in the corporate sector, you know, the corporate uh, world will say we need government to be involved 
so that all businesses will get on board and use the universal metrics that are mm-hmm. shareable, right? So the corporate sector says we have to have government uh, use its coercive power to do uh, what we want it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of just public policy, you'll read all over the place that you have to have government involved because of its purchasing power, its power as a convener of different parties, and uh, and also the perception of legitimacy that it still holds. Holds. So, yeah. you know, if the you know, the people we're dealing with have enough money that they could do whatever they wanted. And they have enough cronies in different places that they could do basically whatever they wanted, except that you have to have the public comply. And that's what governments are are useful for right now, is that they can get the public to comply, not because the public likes the policy or believes that they have contributed to it, its formation, but because they think that what the government does is justifiable as an authority, right? So, Mm -hmm. or they're scared of being locked up or, you know, taxed or something. Yeah. But that is, I think, something that the people of all the world's nations and if if just one country did it one place did it i don't care where it is it's probably not going to be here in the states because people are too fat and lazy um but if one small group could have enough people that said we are not going to listen to mm-hmm. To this anymore and and in fact we have our own ideas of what government should be now they're totally uh, theoretical you know they're they're not operative in practice but that myth that 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 governmental institutions should respond to the people if you have enough people that believe that then that's very powerful right uh and you take away the the main tool that our resetters have to hide behind and to force our compliance. So on the one hand, I think there's not much hope for the government for, you know, our existing governments, our elections are corrupt. You know, the department of justice in the U S is a big sham. They're, they're criminals, you know, but if the people can revive this myth about representative government, and and if they can use their 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 influence in their own local area to you know make local councilors see that it's best to go with the will of the people and their myth than to take the money i think we have we have some opportunity there to fight back so last question for me is around property rights and um what you've just said if I take it to my zenith, <laughs> my thinking of it, it all comes back to the property right, uh, especially for the individual. Um, and if that was upheld and uh, the real institutions that we had um, leading to having uh, established property rights were were upheld today, we wouldn't even have to have this discussion. Right. I mean, you know, 
There's a reason why the WEF is using this slogan, you'll own nothing and be happy. It, it, it starts with the land and what, what our resetters want is all of the land. So, you know, you mentioned the 30 by 30 program. We have this, you know, it's the Convention on Biodiversity, which actually seeks to track all genetic material of, of every human being, even, um, as, part of the global heritage. Mm -hmm. They're going to do it through land grabs and conservation trusts. And in this way, by setting up conservation trusts that are sold to the public in terms of protecting the planet, you know, they're going to shut out all small individual property owners and set up community funds, community foundations, urban wealth funds, there are a ton of different names for this, that will manage those conservation trusts that can never come back into, you know, the public marketplace. So, you know, you see the statistics. So many people, by the year 2050, so many people are going to live in cities. Mm, you know? Yeah. This is not an organic movement people are actually trying to get out of cities i think right yeah um but all the propaganda says that they're moving in well how is that it's because of these land grabs uh you know people can't afford land um so they're going to be forced into the cities and you really won't own anything there and people are just going to forget they're going to forget that there was something such as land ownership and welcome back to the feudal era, except with the brutality of, you know, the singularity and the AI. So people of the world must fight back. And it sounds impossible. Um, the odds are definitely stacked against us. But I think the, you know, the main thing that we can do is to have the conversation. I really think that that is so important because then we're dismantling their propaganda machine. You're giving people the reminder that questions are important. And once people just start, you know, I think discovering, it's not pleasant information, but the, the pleasure of, of really understanding their world better and more fully, then they'll want to dig deeper. At least I'm optimistic about that. <laughs> so so am I. I, I think we fight, because uh, in all of this, you can do as much predictive programming as you like, but human nature, I don't think you can completely pin it down, no matter how amazing a digital twin city you might have. And there is some of us, as you said, stroppy mums and dads, the ones who are not, not going to go along with this. And this is how... You fight globalism at your local level, be it your local council or your you know, local residents, neighbors, whatever. But it has to be local. That's where it comes from. Because people, as I said, keep looking, going, keep going to your uh, governments for help. Hey, it, it ain't coming there. If you, if you actually want something happening, as Julianne said, look over your fence, speak to a neighbor, chat to someone today and actually speak out loud that what the heck do you think is happening? On that note, Julian, I think we'll wind up this conversation and we'll have to get you back for more. We've, we've taken a lot of your time today. 
If you want to follow Julianne, please look at her work at heartsoverhexagons.com. She also has a YouTube channel where all these talks that she does while she's traveling across the U.S., she puts them up there. Dawn and I are very grateful for your time today, Julianne. Hopefully, it hasn't been too much of an imposition. Oh, it's been a pleasure and it's been so much fun. So I, you know, I hope that it at least touched on a few points that will be helpful to your audience. And, you know, I just want to encourage the people of New Zealand, the Kiwis, as we call them, you know, fight, fight, fight. You know, it. we, we have to protect that spark of freedom and beauty that allows these conversations to occur and to know that there are, you know, just people who are just like us in other places and there are people that are so different and it is really a sort of mystery of of this human connection that we have that AI will never be able to replicate. So it's worth fighting for because if we lose it, we won't be able to build it back and it won't be better. <laughs> what a great <laughs> ending. Hey, thanks, Julian. That was a fabulous ending to a great, uh, great show with you. So thank you uh, for your time. And um, yeah, great spotting, great finding, um, Jaspreet. I'm grateful that we've had Julian on our show. Absolutely. Thank you. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 